All right, welcome everybody to today's podcast uh, with the Seven Figures Club. Today we have an amazing entrepreneur with us, Sean Collins, who's going to be sharing some of his story as uh, a massive business that he's grown to multiple locations. And he's gonna be telling us a little bit about that journey, but here's some background about Sean that I just wanna share real quickly before we get started. He's a successful entrepreneur with over 25 years of retail and consumer goods operating experience, especially in the restaurant industry. He holds uh, integrity paramount in business relationships. His drive for growth and remarkable creative vision propelled him to start his first business at age 23. Uh, saw the excellent potential of his current business, which is Costa Vida, an amazing Mexican grill restaurant experience with nearly 100 locations across the country. And uh, he actually uh, started that in 2004. And uh, he and now President and CEO Dave Rutter became the first franchisees. And then they eventually decided, well, heck, let's acquire this uh, entire Costa Vida brand from the founder. And five years later, again, uh, Sean is very growth oriented, entrepreneurial, has expanded Costa Vida to nearly 100 locations. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. There are over 32 million businesses in the U.S. and over 90% of them will never break seven figures in annual sales. So how do we as entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs break into that seven figures club? This podcast will relentlessly share the secrets, strategies, and tactics I've used to create three multi-seven figures businesses and bring in even more successful entrepreneurs than me to share their inspirational stories and tactics to success. You can create your dream business in life right now. So buckle up and let's go. Thank you. Great to be with you. All right. So we kind of like to start a little bit uh, with the launch uh, back in 2004, I guess, 16 years ago. You know, what gave you and your partner uh, the initial confidence to kind of take that dive into this business? And, and what led you to believe that you would succeed? Uh, the uh, the decision to get involved with Costa was a, a decision to improve another business that we own. We own the uh, Fat Cats uh, Entertainment Properties, which is bowling, movie theaters, uh, yeah. uh, aids, uh, um, virtual reality type uh, uh, games and whatnot. Anyway, uh, we had a location down by Brigham Young University in Provo. And we um, when we came up with the concept of Fat Cats, we wanted to have a great dining experience that inter introduced the entertainment, kind of a one-stop place, go and have a meal and have entertainment all under one roof. And um, our choice at that time was the Pizza Factory. We still currently have uh, the Pizza Factory in our Salt Lake location. But in Provo, the proximity of our Pizza Factory was very close to a freestanding Pizza Factory just a mile up the road. And so it proved to not, uh, to not work to be so close. So we were looking at for a different concept to, to put in there. And the general manager for our Fat Cat Salt Lake location, uh, he had resigned to go start a concept called Costa Azul. And um, he actually approached Dave and I uh, to see if we'd financially back him to launch Costa Azul, uh, which we declined. So he got another financial backer and started the first location in Layton, Utah. Phenomenal success. And as we saw that success and we had a need in our Fat Cats property in Provo, we approached him and said, hey, we'd like to become your first franchisee. And so we uh, opened the second location, which is the first franchise location in Provo inside our Fat Cats. Like Layton, a phenomenal success. Um, and from that location, we 
uh, modified our business model and said, hey, this is a strong brand, Costa, in addition to building our fat cats, which is very capital intensive, we can build these restaurants in addition. So let's start building some restaurants. So we opened one up on 1600 North in Orem. Uh, we then opened the first one out of state in Boise, Idaho. Um, Actually, after the third location that we opened, I think there was 11 locations in total. Um, Cafe Rio and Costa had a lawsuit. They had thought Kinney um, had infringed uh, on uh, uh, their recipes and whatnot. So they had to battle that for a couple of years. As they battled that, we just kept opening restaurants, Dave and I. And uh, when they were done uh, with that lawsuit, when it settled out, um, we had uh, 11 stores, restaurants that we had opened. And I think there was 21 in the entire brand. And it was at that point, as you referenced earlier, that we, um, we bought the franchise company. We figured at that point we had 11. We were providing most of the support to the entire concept, the entire brand. So that's, uh, that's when the confidence grew. And we said, okay, let's go build this thing. And as you indicated, we're now just shy of 100 stores. And we'll be opening 15 stores this next year. And life is good in our coastal world. Uh, amazing, amazing story of growth and, and the journey there. Let's go back to when you were age 23. Tell us about the first business you started and what that experience as a brand new entrepreneur was like. Uh, I, uh, and maybe I'll, I'll go back a little further than that. Sure. Uh, as, a, as a young man growing up, my, uh, my stepdad was uh, a master chief in the military. So we would move around uh, often as a, as, a, as a young man. And, and as, I, as I had visibility to different friends and different areas we'd move into, I, I started to recognize how families who own their own business, it, it, it seemed more common that they had more options. They had a better lifestyle, they had better control of their time. And I'd see my stepdad get sent off to sea in the Navy for six months uh, at a time. And, and I just started thinking, wow, owning your, owning your own business is a good way to go. And, and no one in my family had ever owned their own business and, and uh, certainly didn't have the money or the experience, know-how to, to start a business. But with that little seed of, of, uh, of, of hope or, or um, a dream, uh, when I, I served a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and, and there in the mission field, um, I worked closely. Um, where, where did you serve? In Chile, Concepcion, Chile. Ah, very cool. And, uh, and, and in serving close with my mission president there, I, I, he, was a, uh, he was a captain in the Navy. My dad, uh, uh, being a, a career man in the Navy, my, my dialogue with him was such that I thought I really, that, that, that dream, that desire to own my own business just grew. And, and plus in the mission field, I, um, I, I gained a desire to want to, to be better uh, to become the kind of person that could own my own business. So coming home from uh, uh, my mission and uh, starting school, I, I just right away uh, thought, okay, I'm going to get a day job and I'm going to start a business doing something. And so I got a day job. I was working two day jobs, uh, day and evening. I delivered milk at night. And I worked at a radio shack during the day. And then I started uh, my very first business, which that milk delivery company went out of business. And I thought, well, I can see why they went out of business. So I started uh, off their failure to, to create this, uh, this milk delivery business. Never, I never delivered my first gallon of milk in my company. But in starting that business, Winter Dairy, which was expanding to Utah County, yeah. Um, they didn't want the competition, so a deal was worked out uh, that uh, I made a little bit of money. and uh, it, They bought you out then. And, and, and again, it was a very small amount of money, but it built my confidence. It, it just it was like, wow, I, I created something that 
that I was able to make something on. And so from there, I kept my day job and I started a striping company. And a striping company, if you go in the parking lot, you see the lines and the handicap signs. I uh, went to California, and I'll tell you a quick story on this. I, uh, I, I, to buy my, my parking lot striping machine, it was expensive, and I didn't have the money. And so I uh, found the manufacturer in Moore Park, California, and called them to see if I could buy one direct because I could get a better price. And they said the only way I could do that was to be a distributor. So I said, well, what's it take to be a distributor? And I had to have an opening order. Whatever size that opening order was, I thought, okay, so if I order something that big, then I can get distributor pricing. And they said, yes. So I then went around Utah to these rental yards like Ace Rents, and I was selling airless painting equipment to them. I pre-sold it. And I sold enough that when I put my order in to Moorpark, California, the company was Airlesco, I bought enough to get them their products and make enough of a margin that it paid for my striping machine. And so I did one transaction as a distributor with them and I was done. Now I had my striping machine. And uh, I started uh, with my wife for two years. Um, uh, we would strike parking lots at night. That's when parking lots are empty. And so uh, she would sleep in the car. I'd whistle and wake her up. Uh, so she'd move the headlights to a new section of the parking lot. I'd strike until I couldn't see anymore. I'd whistle and wake her up. And we did that for two years. And that company grew, still had my day job. It grew to the point that I... I was now taking on government contracts at airports and, and municipalities, and so I bought uh, bigger equipment, the big trucks that, that paint the lines on the highways, and, and, um, and through the success of that company, I actually bought the company where my day job was, where I'd been working the day job. And so, uh, and that- and and what that, did that company do? That, that was a wholesale supply company of bowling equipment. Now, if you know Fat Cats, okay. it's a bowling concept. So now I'm, so, now I'm, I'm selling bowling equipment, and that, that was in the Intermountain West, and that company scaled to where I was then selling bowling equipment internationally. And through that whole success, uh, Dave and I started the very first Fat Cats, which was our own bowling entertainment property. Phenomenal. I, I love that story you just shared about how you didn't have that initial money to get that piece of machinery that you needed for the stripe painting business, but you just made a deal with the manufacturer, and then you went out and hustled, sold first, and got enough through the sales to make that happen. I think that's a big lesson for everybody that's starting a business. And you didn't, I love that you didn't quit your day job too, because I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm just gonna quit it, go for it. No, it's off, actually oftentimes better to keep the day job, keep the personal finances in place, and then kind of do the side hustle on the side, which you did. Exactly. And just a lot of great lessons there. Um, now, you mentioned that uh, you served a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Concepcion, Chile. Funny, I actually served uh, in Santiago North uh, in Chile as well. And I think a lot of youth, and we've got a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs and, and uh, young entrepreneurs on this uh, podcast that listen to it. And when they first are you know, getting into school or out of high school, they're looking for some guidance there. What kind of lessons do you think you learned on that mission that have translated into success with work ethic and sales skills uh, that, that you've been able to utilize in business? Well, let, let, me, let me add to that. From my own mission experience, after being home, I just recently in July returned from a second mission. My wife and I served, I was a mission president down in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and we just got home two months ago. So I had the opportunity for the last three years to work with 600 missionaries watching them learn, grow, and become, reflecting on my experience back when I was 19, 20, 21, how I learned, grew, and became, 
And, and it was remarkable what I learned and what I witness now, 600 missionaries learn. You learn time management. You learn mm. discipline. You learn integrity, doing the right thing when no one's looking. You learn how to overcome opposition. You learn how to embrace hard things, how to find joy in doing hard things. Um, you learn how to get along with people. You learn how to see the good in people. You learn to see beyond the, what, what's obvious to see the, the difficult pieces to, to see the good that, that's in there, whether that's in a companion that you're serving with or whether that's someone that you're serving or teaching in an area where you're assigned. Um, so many life skills that you're able to develop as a missionary that now you can bring into a business, you can bring into a marriage as a parent. Uh, those skills are uh, far-reaching, uh, of, of much greater importance than we realize in the 18 months or two years we serve, how that can impact our lives, as you probably know from your mission in Santiago. Absolutely. And so I think a lot of young entrepreneurs, there's the, you know, if you can't serve a mission in your church, you could obviously look at, uh, at our church or Salvation Army. I mean, there's so many opportunities, but when you can get out there and serve and manage your time and, and learn to communicate and care about people, I think that the success that translates is, is phenomenal. I appreciate you sharing that. Let's talk about your background a little. You said you grew up, but your stepfather was uh, in the military. What was Sean like in high school and middle school? And what about your upbringing, uh, you know, really influenced you uh, in terms of entrepreneurship? You know, my, my story is, 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 is probably not a whole lot different than a lot of people's. Um, I, I, uh, I, I, I was part of a, a, I could call it a dysfunctional family. Uh, my, I'll tell you a little bit of the story. My, my mother um, was, uh, uh, her mom and dad had an affair and she was the result of that affair. And my grandmother and my mother moved right across the street from my grandfather and his wife and four children. And she was raised in that environment where there was rejection and my grandfather was an alcoholic, my grandmother was an alcoholic. Uh, so she dealt with that environment. Uh, she became a survivor very young. She, uh, um, she was actually uh, uh, given to a family member in California for a period of time. And then my grandmother brought her back. She, there, she was, there, there was just more uh, dysfunction without her there than there was with her there. And, and eventually she got tired of it to the point she ran away at 14 years old. And at 14 years old, she ran away never to return home again. And she lived on the street. Uh, it was on the street. I think she was 15, almost 16. She met my dad. Um, my dad was a first-generation immigrant from Ireland. Uh, he, too, was an alcoholic um, when he came over, um, uh, had a strong Irish brogue, had a hard time finding work, but uh, uh, eventually found work as an electrician apprentice and later worked on a, a bridge crew. And, um, but as they met, um, they, they went door-to-door -door selling uh, magazines. And uh, my mom had my – she had a miscarriage at 16, had my sister at 17, had me at 18. So she had three pregnancies before she was 18 or before she was 19. And, and um, my, my dad was killed when I was young. I was three years old. My mom married my stepdad um, uh, when I was young. I, again, right there around that same time frame when I'm three years old. And then we, we traveled in the Navy. We were in Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, throughout the United States. And, and uh, my mom and my stepdad had a dysfunctional relationship. They didn't have a great relationship. And uh, as a matter of fact, after I served the mission that I referenced, when I, when I returned home, they were divorced after about 20 years of marriage. And um, so here, here's the question he asked, what, what my upbringing was like and what I learned. What I learned was, uh, and let me back up and explain, 
in the middle of all that, when I was 14, two sister missionaries of our church were knocking doors in a neighborhood and met my family. When they met my family, they taught principles that were foreign to us. Um, uh, and, and those principles, knowing about God, knowing about Jesus Christ, knowing about beatitudes, you know, just ways of being, uh, very foreign uh, to me. But, but I remember when these two sister missionaries were in our home, there was a light that they would bring into our home that was not there when they weren't there. And that attracted me. And, and with that light, um, I wanted to know what, what the source of that was. As a matter of fact, my whole family did. We all joined the church. Unfortunately, later they, they, they went inactive, all of them. But, but for me, it changed the trajectory of my life. I was able to, from that experience, I started looking much more intently on relationship. My mom and my stepdad, I looked at their relationship and I determined, these are things I'm going to do in my marriage. And these are things I'm not going to do in my marriage. These are things I'm going to do with my kids. And these are things I'm not going to do with my kids. I was able to learn uh, how to be better, even from a tough situation. Uh, I would, I, as I grew up, I'd look around at my friends, their families, and, I, and I'd see functional things in relationships. And I think, I, I want that. And so I, I'd work on that. And I'd see dysfunctional things. I, I don't want that. I'm, I'm not going to do that. And little by little, 14, 15, 16, going on a mission, coming up to this very day, I, I continually try to identify what can I do to sharpen my saw? What can I do to be a little bit better than I am uh, as a dad, as a husband, as an employer, as, a, as an entrepreneur? Um, and, and so that mindset that came uh, when I was four, 13, 14 years old has carried through in my life to where it's a journey of becoming always, a, a journey of identifying how I can be better and, and then one by one improving in the areas that I can improve. Wow, that, that's an amazing uh, experience and journey and, and background. And I think what it tells everybody listening is there's, there's no excuse. We can all overcome these difficulties by finding the solutions, by finding, you know, some structure, some guidance from finding, you know, religion that can help you and, and inspire you. And then learning from those good people, those functional people, and, and then making the changes so there's just no, we all have these difficult upbringings and, and certainly yours was as challenging as anyone's. And I mean, your father is, is passes away when you're age three and, and dysfunction uh, in family life and so much difficulty, but you were able to overcome that by learning from those people who came across your path, those sister missionaries, those friends and families. And so that's a great lesson, I think, for us all that regardless of our circumstances, and especially through entrepreneurship, like you have this power to change the entire trajectory of your life, which is what you did. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Sean. Um, let's talk about, uh, about the risk of starting a business. How is it uh, that you and your wife were able to, you know, overcome that initial risk and fear that comes with, with starting something, with starting business? And, and now you've started multiple businesses and put a lot of money and resources and time, everything maybe on the line. How do you look at risk, you know, as an entrepreneur? Well, I, I think with risk, you have to associate the word uh, fail or failure. Um, you, you, you've heard the phrase often, failure is not an option. I, I love the quote in the movie Apollo 13. You might remember the scene where in Apollo 13 the, uh, with this uh, uh, spaceship, they're having to bring it back in um, and they realize they had some problem with the module um, and their oxygen. Uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, but to come up with the solution, what they did, they went into a room 
and they took everything that they had in that spaceship and they threw it on a table. And they said, we have to get this spaceship from here in space back to Earth and we've got to do it using nothing but that. And that was everything that was on the table. And then they made that famous quote, failure is not an option. Um, and it was interesting how failure wasn't an option, but there were a lot of failures along the way throughout that movie or that experience. It was a real life experience. Lots of small failures along the way to create the success where failure wasn't an option. And so in business or risk, um, there, there's gonna be times that you fail, um, but you need to understand that failure is part of the success. It's what you learn in those failures. It's you'll take risk. And sometimes when you take those risks, it'll turn out to be a, a, a risk that was worth taking. It was a total win and, and it's obvious what the win was. There's other times you'll take that risk and it'll appear to be a failure and it was a disaster. But with time, as you look back on that, what you learned through that disaster or that risk, that failure shaped you. It, it, it taught you, it prepared you to avoid that in the future or to, to improve upon that in the future. And so for me, with, with risk, I saw risk as an opportunity. I wasn't, I wasn't blind to it. I, I, I wasn't reckless with it, but I would look at risk and I'd measure that risk. And I knew that there was a chance that I'd fail, but I knew if I did fail, that was going to be part of my success. And what could I learn from that fail and build failure and build upon that. And so um, in, in my success in any of my businesses that we, we have built, anytime there was a failure, we would come together and we would, we would identify, okay, what, 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 what caused those failures? We discussed the different solutions that coulda, shoulda, woulda, and what we could learn. And then what's the solve from that? If it's nothing more than a learning to prevent it next time or a learning of how to take that failure and turn it into something pretty great. Um, I, even with my team today, uh, uh, all the leadership that, that's part of our organization, I talk to them all the time. Don't, don't be afraid of risk and don't be afraid of failure. Calculate it, measure it, um, and, and learn from it. And, and with that mindset, knowing that you will ultimately succeed, and you're going to have to do it within your financial parameters and, and, and limitations, um, but, but even within those parameters and limitations, I, I was listening this morning to a podcast um, uh, by Darren Hardy, and he was sharing, um, he was sharing the story of, of an individual who uh, um, he was 94 years old. He was looking back on his success in life and he was talking about how, how he got to where he was. And he said, one thing I would always look at is what status quo was. They, they, it would take uh, typically a year to accomplish X. Well, I would accomplish it in six months or three. Um, this is his approach. He said, anytime I was given a timeline, I'd cut it in half or I'd, I'd cut it three quarters out. And then, I, and then it was now impossible. But where it was impossible, I would then identify a strategy and a plan of how I could do it in that time frame. And he would fail at times. But what he learned that the, the area he was now operating in at, at three months to six months, as opposed to what was typical at 12, using that as an analogy, was remarkable. And, and so I, I would just simply say, uh, embrace risk. Embrace, make sure you're not reckless um, and you calculate it, but don't see it as the negative. You can fail your way to success done right. Amen. Well said. Now, you've talked about uh, your team and, and some of the amazing people at Costa Vida and maybe some of your other organizations and Fat Cat. Um, so what, what's the process like to find good people? And, and how have you learned to, you know, this is the right fit for our team and our culture that we're building? What does that process look? And if you're starting a business or trying to build one, what's been successful for you to find great people? Uh there's a phrase um, we, we both referenced uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There's a quote that uh, 
the prophet uh, Russell and Nelson shared a couple conferences back when he said inspiration uh, plus, um, or excuse me, information plus inspiration leads to revelation. Uh, you can read many success books that says something similar. Information leads to inspiration or insight, which leads to better choices, which leads to success. Um, information is, is vital. Uh, when, it ta- when you think of hiring people that's going to join your team, that's a decision you want to get right. Um, you get the wrong people on the bus. Um, you get the wrong people on the bus in the wrong seats. That's Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. Um, you, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll see quickly that you're, you're, you're going to work two, three, four times as hard to get things done when you've got the wrong people on the bus or in the wrong seats. So on the very front end, make sure you're getting enough information on the people that you're going to, you're checking the references, you're, you're, you're interviewing them multiple times, you're taking the time. Sometimes you need someone tomorrow. In, in a restaurant business, we, we got a key position that's empty. We, we need that filled right now. Uh, but the problem that you're going to create if you do that uh, and, and, and don't get the right information, uh, that problem is going to reach far beyond solving the problem of today. What's going to happen a month, two, three, six months from now, uh, you're going to be dealing with that decision then. So I, I, I would say that um, in, in making the decision on who you're going to hire, who you're going to align with, if there's sister companies, banks you're going to work with, you take the time and get as much information as you can. The more information you can process, the more insight will come to you. you, you you'll just, I don't know how to explain it. You'll have a sixth sense with it. You'll, you'll feel, you'll, I think we all know where that comes from. You'll, you'll, you'll get a, a good feel of the direction you need to go when you have enough information. And then with that, now have the confidence to go forward and, and, and make the decision. Going back to what we said a moment ago, sometimes that may end up being a bad decision. But good will come from it if you look at it in the right way. But I would just say to your question, just make sure on the front end of any of these key decisions, you spend the time to gather as much information as you can so you can make better choices, better decisions, get, get greater insight. Sounds like the old adage, slow to hire and quick to fire is, is one that you follow because you, you've got to take your time to get the right people. That's right. Well said. Well, perfect. Now, how is it uh, Costa Vida, you know, there's this atmosphere when you walk into it. They always have an amazing uh, ambiance when you walk in there and, and the customer service is a certain way. How do you build that type of culture in a business with this many locations and this many employees and, and how should somebody look at culture and, and what some of those keys to success are in building a culture like the one you've created at Costa Vida? Be true, a culture is you are true to your mission, vision, and values, your vision, mission, and values. Um, with that culture, I, I'll share this with, with Costa. I love the fact that you just described Costa by using the word amazing. We actually have patented or trademarked, we serve amazing. That's part of our trademark. Um, our, our mission uh, statement is we serve amazing Mexican-inspired Mexican fresh food that offers a quick escape to the coast. That's our mission. Our vision is to better our world. Now, I want you to think of this. This is a powerful vision statement. We better our world by becoming. Well, to, be, to better our world, you've got to better yourself. You better yourself by becoming. You learn and you grow. You better our world by becoming the number one choice for Mexican food. Well, the number one choice is an aspiration. Yes, for Mexican food. We've got to have the best food. That's a, an absolute must. But the number one choice categorically 
in cleanliness, number one choice in the site selection, number one choice in franchise partners, number one choice in hiring team members, number one choice categorically. And we do that in every neighborhood. Wherever there's a Costa sign hanging, we wanna make sure that community knows that we give back to our community, to our neighborhoods. People that work with Costa, whether it's a career path or it's getting them through school, they are better after having had their experience at Costa. They've learned, they're they're better moms, better dads, better husbands, better fathers, um, uh, or better moms, uh, better wives. Um, They they are just better for the experience. Then we have our our values, and our values we tie to an acronym, title, a team, integrity, discipline, assertive, and love. Um, Team uh, is is you, me, we, we we are one. Title, uh, integrity, we do the right thing when no one's looking. Discipline, we strive for excellence. Assertive, uh, we are empowered. And love, we care. Now, here's the answer to your question. With our vision, our mission, and our values, we are constantly challenging everything that we're doing and saying what we're about to do, is it aligned with that vision, with that mission, and with those values? And when when we are disciplined, and that is a big deal to us in our culture, we've created this culture, we're about ready to do that. How are we looking with our mission, vision, and values? Where are we? And when we can answer that question, that, hey, we are aligned, and then we move forward full speed. When we're not aligned, we pause, and we make whatever tweaks and adjustments we have to make until we are aligned. And then when we're aligned, we go forward. And that just keeps us on the track. Amazing. So I think a lot of businesses and entrepreneurs, we, we understand vision and we talk about values to build that culture, but I think a lot, I think a lot of us miss vision. Because the vision is where you're going, and that is super important. And so it sounds like in your culture, your team and employees and franchisee owners all know this is the mission, this is the vision, these are the values, and then our decisions should align with those mission, vision, and values. But I think a lot of people miss the vision. And don't forget, it's not what's written on the walls. I think a lot of companies, oh, there's their vision or mission or values, and it's on the walls. Everyone can see them. It's not what's written on the walls. It's what's spoken in the halls. And it's what people are talking about. Mm. When we're talking about our mission, when we're talking about our vision, and we're talking about our values and the decisions that we're making, now you've got culture. Now that it's that culture you can build upon. It's not just there. It's what we're talking about. It's what we live and breathe. So let's talk about the last uh, you know, several months with the slowdown, the pandemic, the craziness, and how that's affected business. How have you guys navigated that and, and what pivots or, or changes, if any, did you need to make to, you know, go through this, this crazy time we're living in? I, I think pivot is the right word. Um, you know, with, uh, with Costa coming up on the 100 stores, a strong, strong brand, uh, very profitable. Our Fat Cats properties, uh, we had just opened a, a new uh, theater property with our restaurants, entertainment in Mesa, Arizona. Actually, we're under construction right now with one in Queen Creek, Arizona, just built one out in Saratoga Springs um, with our coaches as they were growing, coming into March. Uh, just a great time. And, and uh, when COVID hit, like with everyone in the country or in the world, um, it, it set us back on our heels. I mean, we, uh, uh, that month of March and into April, we were like, okay, so what does this mean? And, and uh, with the shutdowns that happened, uh, we, we pretty quick, again, going back to our previous conversation, mission, vision, and values, we, we quickly came back to those and said, okay, this is our life circumstance. This is our new normal. We don't know when it's going to change. So with what we have today, what can we do? What, there, were, there were government restrictions, things we were allowed to do, things we weren't allowed. 
What are we allowed to do? How can we maximize that? And then we run that through our filter of our mission, vision, vision, and values. We create our strategy. You've heard the phrase many times, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. We created our plan and we just execute, executed flawlessly that plan. And, and I can report to you, it's been epic. I mean, Costa is, um, we are as strong profit, our profits today are as strong as they were pre-COVID. Uh, we, had a, we had a hiccup there for uh, four or five weeks, as everyone did, uh, but we, 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 are, we are scaling right now as though COVID weren't here. Um, and that we've had to adjust curbside uh, to goes. Um, uh, as, as we do social distancing, the way our services, our, our technology, our use of technology. You've heard the phrase by Agatha Christie, um, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. We, had to, we had to reinvent many things that we were doing. Now, I'll say fat cats, on the other hand, it was slower. It was just this last month, that, and we're still at about 30%, 40% capacity in our movie theaters because of social distancing and, and arcades and bowling. You're all around. Everyone's in an environment where everyone's closed. So we're, thank goodness, we're strong financially. We, we've got the, the, the financial, we're in the financial situation. We can get us through till the end of next summer. And so uh, I'm hoping that uh, we'll see good things between now and the end of next summer. By the end of next summer, if, uh, if things uh, uh, continue uh, impacting the theater business the way that it has, we'll have to pivot there and make some other adjustments. Uh, but right now, we can't really do a whole lot on the fat cat side other than um, uh, do the best we can with what we are given until, um, until some of these restrictions are, are, are lifted. Absolutely. Well, I can uh, report to you. See, my wife's family is from Burley, Idaho, in southern Idaho there, and there's not a lot of uh, options there. But thank goodness, last time I was there, there was a new Costa Vida location, and uh, my kids and I were happy to be able to go there and, and uh, get some high-quality food. That's great. So the next thing uh, that you were talking about is managing profitability. And I know that that's a big concern and challenge for a lot of business owners. And it sounds like, you know, as a, an entrepreneur, you've been doing this uh, decades now and uh, building profitable businesses. What have been some of the keys to ensuring profitability and, and what profit percentages do you think entrepreneurs should be shooting for uh, to, you know, make sure they're actually making money with their business? That's a great question, and it's different by industry. For let, me, sure. let me just at a high level just, just touch on a couple key points I think that, that's related to that. One, just remember, and you've heard it said many times, cash is king. Uh, you, you've got to make sure that you have some liquidity. Uh, you see so many businesses. That's what's happened in this whole COVID. So many businesses were just right there. So when, they, when there was a hiccup that came along, they just didn't have the cash to weather any kind of a storm. And so in your growth model, as you are successful, as you are profitable, uh, make sure uh, that you are putting cash aside um, to uh, enable you to be able to pivot, to, to, to be able to adjust when needed. And so I, I, I would just first say that um, uh, make sure built into your strategy, your profitability, that, that putting cash aside is part of that. It's not just about covering labor, food costs, other fixed costs and payroll, money coming to dividends. It's not just about that. Built into that is money that's going to be put aside for growth, for expansion, for uh, COVID and, and things like that. Um, and so when you're looking at margins, again, this is what's by industry. In the restaurant world, uh, you love to have a brand that's uh, in that 20% range after food costs wow. and, and labor and, and, uh, um, and your fixed expenses. If you've got that 20%, you, you're going to be healthy. Now take a percentage of that and put that aside uh, for your growth and, and other strategies. And then you, you can distribute the rest. Um, 
if uh, if you're in a, a wholesale distribution, which I've been in, uh, you, you're going to operate on 5% margins, but you're doing much greater volumes uh, um, online. A lot of online businesses operate in these skinnier volumes or margins. Mm-hmm. Um, entertainment's a little bit different. Entertainment, uh, uh, you get your nut cracked, and then uh, once your nut is cracked, you're you know, 95 cents of every dollar goes to the bottom line. Uh, it's a, it's just, you got to look at the industry that you're in, but regardless of the industry, when you look at your profit model, food, labor, fixed costs, whatever they are, make sure as part of that, you've got your profit. Uh, um, you, you've got a number that, that you're putting aside for growth and for other issues like what we've experienced here with COVID. Absolutely. So you, you talked a little bit about technology previously. How important has technology been in, in helping to grow Costa Vida and, and really expand? And, and what should entrepreneurs be thinking about when they're deciding to you know, invest in softwares and technology and different things to improve their business? Well, technology is, is just the world that we live in today. And, and uh, I'm not one uh, that, uh, um, that, that, understands all that's available with technology, but I understand the value of it. And so I surround myself with great minds, um, way smarter than I am. And, and with that, they're able to look at our business model, look at our profitability, and, and then they're able to say, hey, with what we're doing and what's available in technology, we can do these things. And what's not available, we can create these things. And that's part of when I talk about profitability, money we put aside to innovate to identify things that we can do with our app that hasn't been done before. Um, things that we do even in our, in our kitchens with equipment uh, that we can uh, uh, produce our food differently. Uh, we make everything from scratch every single day. Uh, doing things the hard way with, with the equipment that doesn't uh, have technology associated with it. Um, it. I'll give you an example what I mean by that. Today, there's ovens that when we close the night before, we can put all of our food in these ovens and leave and go home for the night while our food is still preparing uh, into the night, and we come back with our kitchen crew in the morning and go through prep. Well, that's technology. And so finding, finding all these things that are available, these minds that know what they are, and then us building our model to be able to embrace it and to welcome it um, as, as we learn about it. And so I, again, I'll, I'll just simply say that in, in most any business that you're in, you're going to have to find a way to embrace technology at some level. No question. Now, we've got a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs listening and and viewing this podcast who are looking for that business opportunity. And I know there's a lot of data that shows if you just try to open a brand new restaurant versus a franchise opportunity like Costa Vida, that the franchise is going to traditionally succeed almost, you know, I don't know what the numbers are, two, three times more. What does it look like uh, for someone interested in uh, becoming a franchise owner of Costa Vida? And, uh, you know, where's the best way for them to connect and, and look at that as an opportunity? Because as you pointed out, you know, there are, for you guys to pivot and be as profitable as ever during this time just speaks to the business model that's uh, been proven, you know, the kind of the McDonald's business model, which is what you've done with grilled uh, Mexican grilled uh, food. What, where, where can they connect and what does that process look like? Well, um, it, it looks different today than it did as an emerging brand. And we're still an emerging brand, but at 100 units, it, it is different than it was when we were at 15, 20, 30 units. Um, early on as a franchise brand, we would sign franchise partners. They'd have to come in and learn in a six to eight week period of time. We'd have to teach them what we do in our kitchens. Uh, they'd have to bring enough money to, 
typically in our model, you're, you're $30,000 for a franchise fee. You'll build a store for six, $700,000, what it costs to, to build a franchise store in a leased location. Um, you'll want to have some capital to, to, to get your business going, about a couple hundred thousand dollars. So it's, a, it's about a million dollars that you want to have liquid in order to get a restaurant going. So early on, we find individuals that had that ability financially. Um, many of them didn't have that restaurant background, and we found that that, that was problematic. Uh, we, we, bring, we, we would be bringing people in, trying to teach them, teach them the restaurant world um, as they're running their business. And, and, and a lot of them are still here today and very successful, but, but there are those that didn't make it. And, and so as we grew, uh, we've gotten to the point today, we really focus on or opening corporate stores that we own and operate. We're still a franchise model, but we're much more selective. Um, when we bring a, a franchise partner on, it's got to be a franchise partner that, that has demonstrated that they can do multi-unit operations. They've done well in other brands. And so that rules out a number of individuals, which being entrepreneurial, we wanted to be able to, to to have opportunities for those individuals. So we've created an operating partner model, which we're super excited about. So, oh, wow. and we've learned this from Chick-fil-A, uh, Chick-fil-A yeah, franchise yeah. model, but internally they bring their franchisees from within. And so today we'll have uh, um, franchise partners that'll come in. They'll be a, a general manager for a store for a year or two. They'll learn everything about running the store. So now they not only know restaurants, they know Costa and they know Smart. how to run Costa. And then with that, we will then help them. Uh, they can, as an operating partner, they get a percentage of the profits. And as they want to evolve and get into opening other stores on their own, or if they simply just want to be an operating partner in stores that we open together, they can partner with us or they can be a franchisee of ours once they are a qualified operator within our system. So today, it's rare that we sign a new franchise partner just off the street that's come in with multi-unit. Now, we still will if they demonstrate they've got strong multi-unit um, experience. Um, most of our, our growth with our new franchisees are operators that have come within our system. They've learned how to run a store, and now they're operating partners with us in our stores, and we just partner together. Or at that point, they've got that experience. They may go to... Uh, Tennessee or to Florida or whatever and start opening stores in that market. But now we're landing people in those markets that know Costa. That's smart. I like that where you're bringing in, they have to be a general manager. They're involved. They understand all the little nuances of the business. And now their they're, odds of success are so much higher. And you're right, Chick-fil-A, one of the best models and a great one. And, and, and implementing a similar system, obviously, is why you're succeeding so much. Yep. So what about uh, work-life balance? As entrepreneurs, uh, you know, I've got five kids and, and a family, and it's a struggle to, you know, make sure that I'm invested as much as I can be in my family, my children's success. And, and we have a lot of entrepreneurs with families and trying to, you know, that uh, work-life balance thing that uh, everybody has a different idea on that. But you seem to have been an entrepreneur who not only succeeded uh, with the highest levels of entrepreneurship, but also, you know, with family how have you done that and what can we implement or, or utilize that you've been able to do to have a great family life as well? As you build, as an entrepreneur, as you build your business, um, you, you want to build leaders. Uh, if, if you yourself, if your whole business is connected to you and you micromanage your team, you're going to have a hard time with work-life balance. As you develop leaders, I think a great example is I was able to, to go serve three years for my church. I was able to 
to step back and take a leave of absence and, and the leadership just continue to, to build our companies as though I, I wasn't there. And that was a result of, of solid leaders on our team. And so we're big on uh, developing our leaders. We have uh, Craig Manning every other week. Uh, he's on the phone with our leadership team today. It used to be in person doing Zoom meetings. I mentioned Dar- Darren Hardy a moment ago. We listened to his uh his I like Darren. Every day, um, I read his book, Compatible, constantly reading and developing our, our skills. And so we're, we're just big on developing leaders. And, and with those leaders, there's no question, as we develop those leaders, there's sometimes that entrepreneurial spirit that they have. They, they take that off and they launch their own company. And we're good with that. We're, 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 we're great. We'll always support them in that. And there's those that, that they, they take that leadership and they become an integral part of building this company together. And, and uh, so I, I would just answer that by saying uh, um, in work-life balance, if you, uh, if you don't develop the leaders around you, you're going to have a difficult time. I, I tell our general managers all the time uh, at the store level, I say general manager is one of the hardest, most difficult jobs on the planet when you don't have leaders and good trained people in your restaurant. Um, when you have good trained leaders in your restaurant and good leaders, ship leads and, and assistant general managers, and um, if you've got that leadership, there's not a better job out there than a GM or an operating partner because you've got the guys that know how to run and gals that know how to run the stores. Um, and so I, I, I would just say work-life balance, surround yourself with people as good and even better than you are. Um, I remember for years when I was starting out, I was paying – uh, paychecks to my team members far bigger than the paycheck I was getting because uh, I was developing and I, and I brought that talent in and, 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 and grateful that I did. So the key to that balance for you, and, and I think that's amazing what you just shared, great leaders in your organization that you can trust and that you can hold accountable that are as good or better than you, that's the key. Because well, that, if you have that, that, then you don't have to work 100 hours a week. You don't have to worry about all the details all the time. But it's, it's, it, and it's a discipline. You, you, you've got to be disciplined to do that. Uh, it's so much easier to have direct control over what you can do versus indirect control of what others. But you've got to get good. Uh, in the, the book, The Multi-Unit Leader uh, by Jim Sullivan, he talks okay. about a leader is not a leader until a leader produces a leader who produces a leader. That's when you're a true leader. And when you can develop that kind of leadership, now you have, like you just described, you now have a choice. You can now choose that, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be spending 40, 50 hours a week, and I've got my other leaders that, that, that I know can do what needs to be done when I'm not there. When you don't have that, you just don't have the choice. You, you have to be there. And when yeah, you have to yeah. be there and you're pounding 70, 80, 90 hours a week, you're not going to get work, work-life balance. Amazing. Great stuff. So you've mentioned some amazing books. That's, I've never heard of that one. The Multi-Unit by, who is that author? Multi-Unit Leader by Jim Sullivan. Multi-Unit Leader by Jim Sullivan. You mentioned the book From Good to Great by Jim Collins, one of my favorite uh, business books. Uh, Darren Hardy's book, uh, I think The Compound oh, Effect. Yep. That's a, a great book. Any other uh, books or, or different uh, entrepreneur mentors that have made an impact that you would recommend uh, you know, people look at? Uh, yeah, I, I'm a voracious reader, and uh, I, I, when I explain to you my background, um, coming from where I came from, starting my first business, and I was here, my wife was graduating from BYU, the success I had in that business uh, exceeded what what my school plans would be, so I, w- I did not finish going to uh, school, 
And so I had to, I had to learn, I had to teach myself. And, and so with that, I, I early on just became a student of the books. And so love, love all of uh, Covey's stuff, uh, the speed of trust, um, the seven habits. Uh, these are basic mm-hmm. ones that you know well. I love Napoleon Hill, his books. Um, I think, think grow rich. Yeah. Uh, great, great read. Um, there, there's, a, um, I don't know if I have a cut. Atomic Habits. Have you heard of the Atomic Habits? I've heard of that one. Yeah, that was a, a great, great new book. Great on setting goals and hitting goals. But there's one, uh, uh, Nudge was one. I don't have it in here. Um, and I feel bad I don't have it because it's one of my great reads and I'm drawing a blank on the, it's by Craig Manning. Um, mm. It's a great read. I, I got to tell you what it is. Hold on one sec. Go for it. The Fearless Mind by Craig Manning. The Fearless Mind by Craig Manning. The Fearless Manning. Mind by, it's a right. fantastic book. And that's one I'd, I'd add to your library as well. Perfect. Well, awesome. Amazing stuff, Sean. We really appreciate uh, your time, expertise, wisdom that you've shared. This is going to be one of the most inspirational, effective podcasts that uh, the community and anyone who's an entrepreneur, aspiring entrepreneur can uh, listen or learn from. You know, where can we connect and and how can we bring value? uh, You know, after everything you've you've shared with us, obviously we need to go to Costa Vida as much as possible, healthy, beautiful, clean Mexican food. What else can we do to help you and how can we connect, um, you know, with Sean and, and Costa Vida? Well, you mentioned earlier that uh, you, our, our coast offices, if you get off at the Thanksgiving Point exit, the big building there, uh, any, anyone that uh, ever wants to uh, stop by, and, and, and I may only get a minute with you depending on what's going on, but I, uh, I love to see entrepreneurs out there chasing their dream. And if there's ever anything I can do uh, in someone putting together a, a, a business, you've got a business plan, you want to get another set of eyes on it, um, uh, to get some insight. I'm a big believer in having mentors out there to, to, to give you different perspectives on things. And so I would just simply say, uh, when you ask that question, what you, can you do for me? We love to give back. And, and uh, uh, as a community, you are amazing. If those are here, I mean, we're in the Intermountain West. Uh, you are so amazing to Costa and to Fat Cats. So you're already taking incredibly good care of us. So I'll turn that question around. What can we do to give back to you? Any of you entrepreneurs that are out there want to get things going, if, uh, if I can ever look at a, a business plan, if I could ever connect you with someone uh, uh, that, uh, that can, can, can be an assist to you in any way that, that, uh, uh, that they can be, I'm happy to help make those connections. I, uh, again, times might be busy if you stop in, but I'll find a minute and I'll help you in any way I can. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. I might take you up onto that or bring some of our team members by. But boy, it's been an amazing uh, podcast and information that I'll probably be listening to a few times from everything you shared, the books and the journey. Thanks so much, uh, Sean. Is there anything else you'd like to share or say before we, uh, before we log out here? Go Costa. <laughs> Let's go. Costa Vida. All right. Hey, thank you. Sure appreciate you. Yep. Thanks so much, Sean. Bye-bye. Are you looking for more seven-figure secrets, content, or even how you can launch your own recession-proof business? Then check out sevenfigures.com. That's the digit seven, F-I-G-U-R-E-S.com, where we share more videos, stories, strategies, funding solutions, entrepreneurial education, and even the secret business type that's recession-proof. 
Thank you for listening. And if you're finding value in our podcast, please give us a five star and invite others to join the club.